Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. One of the things that Jerry and I learned early on when we planted this church um, was that God puts the people in the room that he wants in the room. So what's interesting when you think about Thanksgiving, right, and everybody went home and all the students are gone and went home and all these people have, you know, went to visit family and you would go, oh, there's less people here. Where did everybody go? God puts the people in the room that he wants in the room. And I have a real sense that God's going to do something today with and for the people who are here. So I'm excited. I hope you are too. I want to finish our series here. You know, it's exciting to be able to announce the one day to feed the world offering amount. Like that's exciting, right? And we can get very, very excited about that. And, and I just want to say, like, I, you guys are like so generous. Like you're so, so, so generous. And, and, I, and I think it's amazing that what God is doing in and uh, through us to see the poorest of the poor around the world cared for. But I want to make a confession. Can I make a confession? Just a little confession of just a little fear that I have. The fear that I have is that we might be a people who could give generously for a one day to feed the world offering, but that that wouldn't continue on through our lives. It's a little fear. I mean, I know you guys, you guys want to be people who see the kingdom come everywhere, right? You want to be people who see uh, the poorest cared for and the most marginalized cared for. I know that's your intent. So I know that, that, you know, maybe my fear is unfounded, but it's a little fear. It's just a little fear that even despite our, our best intentions, that we might go through life unchanged. Just my confession, just a pastoral confession. Because here's what I know. I know I have lived my life out of a lot of really good intentions, right? And I have all the best intentions to implement healthy habits in my life and do uh, important things and make changes in my life. And despite my best intentions, months go by, years go by, and I'm not changed. Has that ever happened for you? Like how many times have you made the decision that you're going to make a budget and stick to it? Right? Every January 1st. This year is going to be our year. We're going to make a budget and we're going to stick to it, right? Or how many times have you said, I'm going to stop eating fast food and I'm going to make my dinners at home? Everybody laugh, yeah? Or how many times have you said, you know, this is going to be the year I'm going to create the habit, I'm going to read the Bible every day? A little bit closer. Nobody really laughs at that one. <laughs> or, or, you know, this is going to be the year I'm going to make life changes and I'm going to start going to the gym. I'm going to generate a habit of going to the gym. Like, we've all created these, like, the best, you know, we have the best intentions. And by March, we're driving through McDonald's, spending money that we didn't plan on spending with no intention to ever go to the gym any longer, right? Been there? And here's why that makes me nervous. Because I believe God has called us to be a kind, the kind of people who extend kingdom mercy and kingdom justice in the world. And while we show up in a really big way, 
And I'm so grateful. I can't tell you how grateful I am for your generosity. We show up in a really big way to give to Convoy of Hope, and yet we might be a people who six months from now would be the furthest thing from our intentions to be kingdom people in the world. Do you think it's a justified fear? That's my little fear. That's my little pastoral confession. We're going to begin or finish this series. Begin. We're going to finish this series that we started called Living on the Edge, and we've been taking a look at God's heart towards the last, the least, and the lost, those who are on the margins of society. And so we, we started a few weeks ago. We're going to finish today, and here's what I want you to understand today. I want you to understand today that right belief without right action is death. Right belief without right action is death. We can have all the best intentions in the world, but if it never shows up in action, we might as well not have had the intentions. The message, I'm, I'm calling this message today, it's a matter of life and death. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at God's word. So Lord, I do just thank you for your presence. Lord, I do thank you for the generosity that you've placed in the hearts of the people in this church. And Lord, I pray that you would multiply tenfold what we've given, that it might actually make a real impact around the world. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word today, Lord, that you would put your words in my mouth. God, that if there's anything that I would say that's not from you, Lord, it would just fall to the ground. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me. And I pray, God, that you would put power on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Luke chapter 16. If you want to grab your Bible or your device, Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 19 to 31. And while you're turning there, let me set the stage a little bit for what we're about to read. Uh, You know, one of the most fun things for me is whenever I discover something new about the Bible. Like, whenever I stumble across something and I'm like, really? Like, have you ever come across the fact, like, that Jesus has been talking to the same group of people for a really long time? Like, this is what happened when I studied this passage, right? We're in chapter 16, but like some scholars say that this conversation that Jesus is in started even as early as chapter 14. He gets invited to a Pharisee's house, and he's having this conversation with these Pharisees, and for about two or three chapters, there's this back and forth. There's two audiences. And on the one hand, he's talking to his disciples, and he's teaching his disciples. But the, the Pharisees are listening to his teaching. And on the other hand, he's confronting the Pharisees. And I would imagine the disciples are standing there going, yeah. That's what I imagine they did. Mostly just, just hype guys. Just hype guys. Yeah, what he said. You better watch out. Yeah. But this dialogue just keeps happening, and Jesus is talking to the disciples, and then he's talking to the Pharisees, and then he's talking to the disciples about the Pharisees, and they get upset. And so this thing is happening, and we get to chapter 16, Jesus turns his teaching to talk about money. And so we get to verse 19, and I want want you to understand, Jesus has already made some really, really important statements about money when we get to verse 19. Like, you can't serve both God and money. Things like that. Intentionally pointing the finger at the Pharisees. And so in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 19, here's what we read. It says, there was a rich man, and this is, he's talking uh, to the disciples. There was a rich man 
who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You know, what's not immediately evident in this passage in 2022 is that Jesus isn't making this story up on the fly. Like, I think we, I don't know if you've ever thought about how Jesus comes up with the stories that he tells. I sort of envision him just sort of like, you know, like a grandmother just sort of going on and like just telling stories and they just sort of come out from his head, but there was no preliminary plan and he just comes up with these stories, but that's not what's happening here. Jesus, in this, as he's telling this story, is actually drawing and adapting stories that already existed in the first century. And so there's the, the Egyptians had this story about a fine-clothed man who was in royal linen and, poor, uh, and a poor man on a mat. The Egyptians had this story. Or, or the Jews had this story about a rich tax collector and a poor teacher of the law. And in both stories... In both stories, after death comes a reversal of fortunes, right? The tide turns, and now all of a sudden, the poor teacher is now elevated above the rich tax collector, right? There's a reversal of fortunes. In fact, the idea of reversal of fortunes in the afterlife was a common theme among Jewish people. Often it had to do with this. The, the Jews would understand themselves as being oppressed by the Gentiles, and we are righteous Jews, and, and the wicked Gentiles have oppressed us, but after we all die, we will be elevated above the wicked Gentiles, and we'll take our rightful place. So this idea of reversal of fortunes is a very Jewish idea. It's not new. Jesus isn't making it up. So when Jesus launches into this version, his own adaptation of the story it's a story that's familiar. Except for Jesus, like he always does, changes the punch point of the story. He changes the, the point at which it, it pinches. You see, Jewish people hold on to this idea that when they die, because they are descendants, direct descendants of Abraham, they'll go be with Abraham in the favored place. And so Jesus tells this story about going to be with Abraham, and yet the one who's a descendant doesn't get to go there. And what Jesus has done is he's taken away 
the assumed belief that because we're descendants of Abraham, we, might as, we, are, we are definitely saved people. And instead, he turns the whole thing on, how did you care for the marginalized? Now, some of you might be like, wait, hold on. Are you saying that that's like, I'm saved by my actions? It sounds like that's what you're saying. I'm not saying it, by the way. Jesus is saying it. Jesus is saying, the way that you cared for the poor causes a reversal in fortunes. You'd be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's justification by faith. It's all faith. What are you telling me about actions? Why, why is it the actions that are the dividing line? And here's the thing I want you to see. Caring for the marginalized, according to Jesus, has eternal significance. The way you care for marginalized people is a matter of life and death, eternally. You go, wait a minute. Have we like departed orthodoxy here? Right? I thought it was just the justification of my faith. And we've talked earlier in this series about how the actions that you engage in actually show the faith that you have. There's something I want you to notice here, though. Jesus says there's a timeline. Jesus says you only have this life to care for marginalized people. You only have this life. He makes it really, really clear that once death has happened, you're completely separated. You don't get a do-over. There's not another try. That the purpose of life now is to demonstrate whether or not internally you have eternal life residing in you. Your demonstration of caring for the marginalized is really a demonstration of whether or not the faith that God gives resides in you. And Jesus ties this rich man's ultimate fate basically by him not caring for Lazarus. And Jesus isn't saying, and I better say this, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to be rich. What Jesus is saying is that if you have means, the expectation is that you will steward your resources toward those who need them. The purpose of means is to steward them on behalf of the kingdom. So when Jesus tells the parable, there's no other way to read it except that the time to care for marginalized people is now. Now. It's not later. It's not like whenever I finally get all my stuff in order. It's now. But what he's saying is that it's not enough to just have orthodoxy, right belief. You must have orthopraxy, right action. And like I said, right belief without right action is death. That's another one of those passages that we could take wrong in two directions, right? You see, like, there's like a potential. We could decide Jesus is just wrong, right? Jesus just doesn't know that it's justification by faith. And so he's teaching this seemingly works-based salvation idea. So he's just wrong. We're just going to ignore him. Can I just suggest to you pastorally that it's never a good idea to just ignore Jesus? Just a suggestion. If Jesus says it, whatever else we've created has to bow to what Jesus says, right? So that's one false way is that we could just decide, well, I don't like what Jesus has to say. I'm going to ignore it. The other false way to handle this or the other bad way to handle this 
would be to spin ourselves in a tizzy trying to engage in all of the marginalized ministry and justice and mercy ministry that we could possibly find so that we can prove to God that we are caring for the poor. Right? And both of those are wrong. Both of those are false uh, directions. But if those are false, what's the right way? I'm glad you asked. Nobody was asking. The right way is this. We are responsible for what is within our scope and ability. Or maybe put a different way, we are responsible for what God put it, has put in front of us that he will resource us with. Look at verse 19. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. I should have brought my glasses. At his gate was, a, uh, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. You know, every single day, the rich man lived. I mean, if you want to understand what Jesus is trying to say, purple cloth would have been ridiculously expensive because of the means that it would have taken to make it. The fine linens would have been enough to say that he was rich. The purple cloth is like tipping it over like in extravagance, right? Like gold chains and all that, right? We're, we're like living it up. Big rings, you know. Jesus is saying that, that this guy had it all, living in just ridiculous extravagance. But what we need to understand is he had the means to help the guy who was hanging out at his gate. He had the means to help this guy. And every day of his life, he lived in his extravagance while he didn't help the guy who was at his gate. Every single day. And it's not like he was unaware of Lazarus. If you read on a little bit further, right, after they're both dead and, and the rich man is like, oh no, this has gone really badly for me. He calls out to Abraham and he calls for Lazarus by name. He knows this guy. He's walked past him. He knows his name, probably knows a lot of his story, and has chosen not to help him, even though he has the means. And so whenever he gets to this, this place of judgment, what's he judged on? Look at verse 25. Here's what he's held accountable for. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. The story Jesus tells the rich man is held accountable for not all the marginalized people in the world. He's not held accountable for all the marginalized people in Israel. He's not even held accountable for all the marginalized people in the city. He's held accountable for the marginalized guy that was hanging out at his gate, that he had the ability to help and didn't do so. I think this is sort of helpful and at the same time, discouraging. I think it's helpful because you and I are not going to be held responsible to fix every evil in the world. Isn't that, isn't that a good, good thought? Like, you don't have to change your Facebook picture to match every crisis in the world to solve every problem that's wrong with the world. You just don't have to. You're not going to be held responsible for feeding every poor person in the world. You're not going to be held responsible to fix every injustice in the world. That's a good thing. You're not going to be held responsible for, uh, for helping every immigrant. 
you're not going to be held responsible for fixing every instance of poverty or solving every uh, racial divide or rescuing every trafficked person. Isn't that good news? God's not going to hold you accountable for all those things. That's a really helpful thought. One of the challenges that comes with caring for the marginalized is that you can become overwhelmed by the volume of the work that's at hand, right? Have you ever felt that way? You see all the crisis in the world and you're like, nobody can ever do any of it. I might as well just not try. It feels like anything I do is a drop in the bucket. You're not going to be held accountable for all those things. That's good news. For those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're held accountable for what Jesus puts in front of us, and he will resource what he puts in front of us. The rich man had plenty to take care of the one man that God had put in front of him. God will resource the things that he calls you to, so you don't have to get overwhelmed. It's very liberating. It's very freeing. But I also said it's discouraging. Can we just sort of get a little bit uncomfortable for just a minute? Is that okay? That's just a few of us. It's just us. It's just us. Don't worry. One of the things that's helpful about doing justice and mercy ministry at a distance like we do with Convoy of Hope is that you don't know the stories of the people that we're helping. Right? We're, we're helping a truck get to the Ukraine that's going to feed a lot of hungry people whose houses have been blown up. That's a really good thing to do. It makes it real easy to get started in justice and mercy ministry, right? Because you, none of the, the people's stories cloud your, your view. You don't have to know that the dad that is pictured in the video is a, is a deadbeat dad who doesn't take care of his kids. You don't know those things. I'm not saying that he is. I don't know that that's true. I'm just saying... You don't know the stories, and so it, it keeps your, your eyes clear to do this kind of ministry. The problem, though, is that God holds us accountable for the marginalized within our own world. And now it gets complicated, right? Now it gets a little bit uncomfortable, it gives a little bit uh, cloudy, because we tend to sort of bring our own meanings into things, right? And our own narratives and our own stories, You know, you ever had this thought? It's like, why would I help him? He was a screw-up in high school. We knew he was going this way, and now he's getting what he deserves. Now you know his story, right? And we sort of bring our own stuff into this business of helping the people in our community. You know, I've already helped that guy, and it didn't get him very far. Why should I help him again? How many times do I have to drive past the guy sitting outside of sheets and drop a 20 in this bucket? He seems to be there every day, right? We bring our own stuff into it. Or, or, you know, we've already intervened in the past three pregnancies that this lady shows up. And every time, she ends up in the same spot. How long are we supposed to do this, right? We bring our own stuff into these stories. Or that guy steals from people. Why should I help him? He's probably just going to use that money to go buy drugs, right? Or that lady wasn't very thankful when I helped her last time. I'm not going to help her again. Or I'm Facebook friends with that guy, and I don't appreciate his posts. Right? We bring our own stuff when it comes to doing ministry among people who we know. Right? Altoona's small enough. 
that you see the same people over and over and over again, right? I think, personally, it's actually harder to do justice and mercy ministry in the community that you live in. Because it's harder to keep separated the stories that you know from the call to help people. I remember a few years ago when we were meeting in the train station, um, there was a guy who came down. For those of you who were in the train station with us, you, you know this. There were always, always people who wanted help. Like every service we had, people were showing up saying, can you give us something? Can you help us with this? Can you, you know, whatever. It was, a, you know, in the middle of, of everything that's happened. This guy shows up. He stumbles in, kind of looks at me, and he was like, you know, I just, I'm homeless, and I need a little bit of cash so I can get a driver's license so I can get a job. Which sounds like a good thing, right? Like, if he can get a driver's license, he can get a job, now he can not be homeless. We're helping this guy, right? So we help him out. And a few weeks later, I run into this guy somewhere else, and he clearly had forgotten who I was. And he's peddling the same story. Hey, I just need a little bit of cash so I can get a driver's license, so I can get a job. And the second time I saw him, he was visibly high. Like, and I was like, this is exactly what you don't want, right? Like, we helped this guy. He clearly didn't use the help to do anything good, and now he's high peddling the same story. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And then you would see this guy, and then I would see this guy over and over and over and over. Evan and I walked past this guy one time, and we ended up buying him hot dogs. So I was like, I'm not giving you any more cash, man. Like, you don't use the cash for the things that you say you're going to use it for. We pray for the guy and give him hot dogs while meanwhile he's either trying to buy or sell drugs. I'm not sure what it was. Visibly high. And after a little while, you start going, why? Why am I doing this? Like, why, why am I helping this guy? Like, I know I'm a follower of Jesus. I have this sort of like, I'm supposed to help. But he doesn't seem to even want the help that he's asking for. Like, it doesn't seem to change his situation. Here's the fear, or here's the thing, the temptation that comes is to harden your heart and just say, forget it. I'm not helping anybody. I'm not helping anybody anymore. Not getting any money out of me. Maybe I'll buy you a hot dog. That's the temptation, right? But these are the spaces that God has called us to engage and the local nature of it means that we actually have to dig a little deeper, right? How long can you give cash out to somebody that's not using it for what they've asked for it for? Like you can't do that forever. You can't drive by the same guy and drop a 20 in his bucket every time. Meanwhile, he's just like, there are more hours because he's like, great, this is good stuff. You actually have to do the work to dig deeper and look at root causes and change systems in your community that perpetuate the problems that put the guy on the street in the first place. And this is where, if you're still with me, <laughs> this is where the rubber meets the road. Right? We can give, and I'm, I'm grateful that we give, but if we actually want to be people who live the kingdom life in our community and see change happen, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because if you stick to this sacred work that God has invited us into, what you're going to discover is there's no simple solutions. There are no simple solutions. It's way more complex than you ever wish it would be. It's way messier than you want it to be. It drags you into more stuff than you, than you originally intended. 
It requires more resource than you can pull out of your pocket in any given moment. And it takes more time than you want it to take. The solutions are more complex than you ever wanted them to be. And what I have found to be true is that when I press into the things that God puts in front of me, it has this way of humbling me. It has this way of doing away with whatever bumper sticker Christianity idea that I had. Right? All of our politicians deal in like one-liners for how to deal with social problems. But what you discover if you actually press into these kingdom opportunities is that the one-liners are just nonsense. And they only really appeal to people who are not engaged in the work. Right? Have you ever, have you ever come across that? Those of you, like I know people in this room who are actively doing justice and mercy ministry in our community. And what I imagine you probably see is that every time a politician stands up and, this is all we have to do to fix the problem, you go, you're, you're just so far off reality. Because this kind of ministry actually is way more complex. It, it, I, I had a conversation recently with a police officer. Um, he said, if there was any simple solution, we would have already implemented it. There's no simple solutions. It's way more complex than we thought it would be. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations recently with a lot of different people. If you actually engage and press into engagement with walking with mothers who are in crisis pregnancy, and I know you do. I know there are a number of you in this room who do that, do that work. What you'll discover is it's way deeper the issues that, are, that, are, that present themselves in those situations are way deeper than, is it pro-life or pro-choice? Which way do I vote? It's way deeper than that. The thought that it's, well, it's just, you know, crazy wild people just trying to use this as, a, as their form of birth control is so far off base. But you have to engage with people who are in crisis pregnancy to understand that and understand how they feel stuck and how they feel trapped. Can I just say that secular world is not going to do this stuff? I have watched as all the conversations that I've had with people, and the thing that I consistently find myself thinking is, I wish there were kingdom people in the middle of all this. I wish there were people who could bring the kingdom in these situations. I wish we would actually invest in situations. Or if you don't like that one. If you actually press into engaging the U.S. immigration system, it's broken. We all know that, right? Every politician will tell you it's broken. Every politician has a different way of understanding how it's broken and how it should get fixed. But if you press into work with immigrants who want to be here, what you discover is it's way harder to be here than any cable news channel will tell you. It's way harder to actually plug into this country and be a part of this community. Do you know there are places in the world you just can't come from? Like, doesn't matter how long you want to be here, if you don't have some skill we need or somebody to sponsor you in, forget about it. You just can't get here. But nobody tells you this stuff until you engage with people who are immigrants or who are trying to be. And you discover that some of the most vulnerable people in the world engage a system that's set up to take advantage of the vulnerable. 
like legal people just taking money from people, have no expectation to ever help them file their paperwork. They're vulnerable. But you don't find that stuff out till you press into it. And I always find myself thinking, where are the kingdom people? Where are the people of God's kingdom? Or if you actually press into dealing with drug trafficking in our city, it goes so much deeper than just arresting the drug dealers. So much deeper. I had a conversation recently with somebody in our church who does work in this area, in this city. It touches mental health. It touches housing. It touches the legal system. It touches education. Like, you can't just deal with drug trafficking by a one-liner, but it takes kingdom people who press into that and who discover that the stories are tragic a lot of times. Where are the kingdom people? I think that's us. I think that's us. If you actually, this is the last one I'll cover, all right? I don't know if we can handle any more trauma. I, th- I-, I think you got one more. I think you got one more. If you actually press into dealing with poverty in our city, do you know it's a lot more than just handing a box of food to a, somebody who pulls up to your drive through window? To actually deal with poverty, you have to deal with fatherlessness, you have to deal with broken homes, you actually have to deal with like the legal system and you have to deal with education. It's way more complex. That's good, that's good. It's way more complex, right? But we don't find that out till we engage. One of the biggest, un, un, I think, undealt with issues in our community that every conversation I've ever had eventually touches that I don't think people are really doing something about is mental health. They just aren't. We were downtown in the train station. There were so many people that we would come across who were homeless. Those of you who were there, you remember. You come across so many homeless people We want to help you. We want to get you in homes. We want to get you in places. We want to get you off the street. Most of the people who are perpetually homeless have mental health issues, and nobody's doing anything about it. They want them to just go away. Where's the kingdom people who care about mental health? That's one of the biggest untouched areas, I think, in our community. And all I'm saying in saying all this is I think that if you, engage, if you choose to engage in issues of justice and mercy, which I don't think Jesus makes optional, by the way, you'll be forced to become a more humble and a more compassionate person. Forced to. And here's what will happen. You'll discover that most of the time, you just don't feel like it. Right? Right? If we were honest, how many of us wake up every day feeling like dealing with tragedy on top of tragedy on top of tragedy? Most of the time, we just don't feel like it. If you're waiting to feel like helping marginalized people, if you're waiting for that to happen, that's a really bad wait. If you're waiting for some sign from heaven, God is going to miraculously show me that today is the day that I'm going to get started, that's a fool's errand. Look at uh, verse 27. Jesus just says this. So he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come, not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. When this guy understands that he has lived his life wrongly, he says, go do something miraculous for the rest of my family so that they won't screw up too. And Abraham's response out of the mouth of Jesus is, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Why? Because what Abraham is saying and what Jesus is saying through Abraham in this passage is, God has already clearly dictated what his heart is for the poor and the marginalized. He's already clearly said it. And if they don't want to listen to Moses and the prophets, what's a miracle going to do? What Jesus is saying here is, care for the marginalized is really a matter of obedience. It's really just a matter of obedience. You don't care for marginalized people because you feel like it, even though sometimes your heart will be stirred with compassion. You don't care for the marginalized because you've seen some special revelation from heaven, although sometimes God will call you in a miraculous way. Those things are possible, but you don't do it because of those things. The reason you care for the marginalized is because Jesus, though he was rich and had all wealth and all power in heaven, he voluntarily became poor that you might receive the riches of heaven. That he came to earth and died for you so that you could receive the wealth that he laid down. He became poor so that you might become rich. The reason you care for the marginalized in your life is because your hard heart has been so melted by the love of Jesus that you would do anything, he said. And it's just sheer obedience. I'm so in love with Jesus. I mean, because what else, honestly, would, would cause you to wade into the messes in our community? It's not going to be like good feelings. Because if you go into, into wading into the messes with good feelings, they'll get squashed out of you pretty quick. Those of you who do the work, you know that. It's not going to, like, what's going to sustain you after tragic story on top of tragic story on top of tragic story? It's not your feelings. It's not a miraculous vision. It's that the love of God has been poured out in your heart in Christ. And it's because of love for Jesus you obey. You know, we talk about what discipleship is. It's obedience to the commands of Christ. That's what it is. And might I, like we talk about that in, in praying for people. We talk about that in, you know, sharing prophetic words. We talk about that. But might I also include the other things that Jesus says a lot? Caring for the marginalized. Like if you're stuck spiritually, if you're spiritually stuck, can I encourage you to take steps towards the, those who are on the margins? You want to get unstuck? Stop thinking about yourself and start caring for the people in our city and those around you. But here's the thing. You've got to start moving. The time is now. That's why we've created that Justice and Mercy survey. That's why, like, Jen will reach out to you if you connect with her. But you've got to take steps forward. Because if anything of what I have said today is compelling to you, if you don't take any step forward, do you know what's going to happen? You're going to leave here, you're going to go to, I don't know, where are you going for lunch? 
Everybody's going home. Man, it's amazing. You're going to go home. You're going to have lunch. Some of you are going to throw a football game on. And by 5 o'clock, the desire to engage with the marginalized will be gone. And hopefully someday that God would prick your heart again. But you've got to take steps forward. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.